Lauren Schooneman, how are you? Um, I'm good, Zoe. I'm great. I'm great. Happy to be here. I'm I'm happy that you're here. And I was just talking about you this morning to my boss. We had a one-on-one. And I don't remember the context why we were talking about this, but I was describing to her the concept of the trio that was you, me, and Callie in the religious studies department. Yeah, honestly, that that trio is the most iconic trio that could ever exist. Um, and I miss it more than life itself. Um, for those listening, it was me, Zoe, and Callie Gernicke. Shout out to Callie. Um, and then we also had an even better trio of professors. Shout out to Dr. Mike, Emily Dykeman, and Sister Laura. Um, yeah, we were all best friends. And I think the addition of the pandemic and then having to do Zoom class. And then there was um, our our capstone class with <laughs> with Rolf. <laughs> do you remember when do you remember when that conservative girl um edited my paper? There was that yes. that one conservative like English major who had to edit my paper and Rolf like didn't really know how to react to that. That's right, because Lauren, what was your paper about? Um it was about uh queer theology, um more specifically about the Catholic Church in recognizing same-sex civil unions. Because partially because I'm queer, um, and I'm also Catholic, um, and those two oftentimes don't really mix in contemporary society, in traditional society. I guess you could say I don't really know. Yeah, I've kind of made it my mission in life to bring those two together, um, and to be able to live in harmony together. And what are you doing in your day to day life, or your work life, your school life that is working on making those two things mix? So I am currently a second year grad student at Marquette University. Um, It is a Jesuit university. Um, I miss my Franciscan university though. Sorry, Viterbo. But I have had the opportunity, I'm in the systematics and ethics track, which um, it's very hard to explain to people who don't really know what it is. Um, Sometimes I don't even know what it is. <laughs> um, but it focuses a lot on like morality and ethics um, surrounding religion kind of I don't want to say like criticizing religion and um, theology but it's taking a more critical lens um, in viewing theology and finding ways to establish um, finding ways to establish like how bridges can be built um, and how society and theology can coexist in one space um, in like an ethical, moral manner where people are treated as they should be, no matter what faith they follow, practice, no matter what kind of human being they are, etc. So my classes are great. Um, Being in grad school, it leaves me a lot of opportunity to kind of do my own research. Um, I have a lot of, I mean, my classes are themed like I took Latin American theology. I took this semester. I'm in freedom, sin, and conscience. Last semester, I had a virtue ethics course. Um, but we are allowed, kind of at the end for our final paper project, to tie the theme of the class into something that we're interested in. So a lot of what I've done is um, feminist theology, queer theology. Um, last semester, I wrote for my virtue ethics final a paper on. Um, the virtue of courage in the queer um, faith community. 
And I actually had the opportunity to connect to or connect with um, Brian Massengale. Um, yeah, I he is a professor at Fordham. He is a queer black um, professor, um, pastor, priest. I'm not exactly sure of his official title, but um, yeah, I reached out to him because he had a lot of good writings. And so I just sent him an email. He is a professor at Fordham. So I was like, okay, he's like this big famous like theologian. Like there's no way I'm going to hear back from him, but he emailed me back. And it's like, hey, so nice to hear from you. Like, here's the article you requested, like, good luck in your research. Um, and then actually recommended me to reach out to another um, queer theologian named Meg Stapleton-Smith. She actually just finished her dissertation last year under Massingale at Fordham. Um, she's another queer theologian. So I emailed her um, because she wrote her dissertation on the virtue of courage um, in the queer community. So I was like, perfect for my research. Um, she emailed me back and told me how great it was to hear of somebody who had some of their research interest to her, sent me her um, dissertation to read and wanted to, told me that she wanted to keep in touch um, and wanted to help me out any way possible in any further research I had, um, which was awesome. So there's a lot of cool connections. I feel like I'm just kind of rambling at this point. No, that is, that is what you're here to do. We're here to just hear about the good things you're doing in your life. So I love it. Um, I miss the atmosphere that we had at school so desperately because you are one of the only friends that I have that I can talk freely about religion and social justice issues with. And I don't know why it is so damn hard to find, but it is. And it can be really frustrating to find people with similar beliefs and values and it's mind boggling because I feel like we're just trying to love each other and love our neighbors and love our world and seek justice for those that have less than we do. Yet it's such a rare thing. And again, I'm in a smaller town. I feel like if I were living in a larger city, things could be different, but I just miss having having you guys around. Yeah. Um, honestly, I think about Viterbo and my people every day, like Viterbo, um, especially like in campus ministry within our major, even though it was so small, um, is truly like the one place that I've felt at home and like fully myself. Um, I mean, obviously I have a community now, but I'm not as close as I was in my Viterbo community. Um, I haven't spent as much time with them, so it can be quite isolating um, oftentimes. And I know that each of us now are kind of doing our own thing, out doing our own adventures. Um, so it's very hard to like find time to touch up. Yeah, um, Viterbo was like in lacrosse, like where I feel like my heart still very much is. But I know that like also within my heart that I needed to expand and bring like my goals elsewhere, um, especially like with my queer theology, like it's not just something that can be learned in one place or talked about in one place. Like it's something that needs to be brought to light in many different spaces, um, to many different people, different communities. Um, I lived for a year in Detroit doing a year of service and I still found my way back to the Midwest. While I, while I did say that it's, I miss having people that I, agree with or that I can just be my free belief self with bringing 
what we believe and what we feel to our core into spaces where people don't necessarily belong is also very important. So, okay. Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) Um, But yes, I would like to talk about what you did after graduation from your undergrad. And uh, you can talk about really that whole experience, the application process, how you decided where you were going or where you assigned. Okay. Um, well, I guess going back to what Zoe was talking about previously that I remember um, now, but Viterbo and like being with Callie and Zoe in that space, like even with my professors, like, and Emilio, just in the atmosphere of campus ministry, like I was very afraid at first to um, be myself, um, to let those people like know that I was queer because I was very afraid of being judged for being in such like a, I don't want to say religious, um, but more of like a faith-centered space um, where I didn't know if I'd be accepted. But Viterbo, all of campus ministry, minus a few human beings, um, were excellent, like very much accepted who I was, embraced who I was. um, And my just like when I came up with the idea of wanting to do queer liberation theology for my thesis, um, Sister Laura was actually the one who like recommended me to do that. And then Dr. Mike was my advisor. And for those who don't know Dr. Mike, he is a um, older white man who looks like a very skinny version of Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. Um, he literally is my grandfather. I love him. He's not literally my grandfather, but in my heart he is. Um, Zoe, Zoe literally made him a tie for his retirement um, with me, Callie, and her face on it. Um, I, yeah, I, think he, I think he cried a little bit in his heart um, he would anyways. never admit it no he would not um because he was a man of steel but get him talking about his grandchildren and he goes full soft anyways um but he told me like I don't know much about the queer faith community but I'm very excited to learn I'm very excited to take this journey with you um and even to this day like all of them are still my number one fans okay wait before we go into your year of service one thing that I loved about Dr. Mike, he was not my advisor, but I think that that man taught me how to write a an academic paper because he was so good at taking what we had, no matter if it was like worth an F or worth an A, and ripping it to shreds in the most respectful way possible. You would fix it. You would learn from your mistakes and your grade reflected it. Like he, he was not the kind of professor that would make you feel stupid for doing something wrong. He would tell you you're being stupid and then empower you into doing it better. And I, I appreciate him so much. Yeah. That man taught me how to write a damn good paper. Um, (laughs) I had him my freshman year um, for my VOSM class, VOSM honors, um, my very first class of college ever, 8 a.m., Monday, Wednesday, Friday. This man terrified me walking into class first day. Like, I would answer a question and he'd immediately ask why. And I'd get so frustrated because I wasn't used to like giving the reasons to my answers. Like, they were just the answers. Um, so I became so frustrated with him. I was like, I don't know why. And he'd be like, okay, but like, you need to answer the why. And so I got so frustrated all year. And I like, he gave you this list like a bulleted list of like all of the things you need in your paper, like Dr. Mike's do's and don'ts of writing a paper, 
He was obsessed with the comma, the commas, man, you got to use the commas. Um, but I passed his class. I passed the USM honors. Um, and then I didn't have them for, for, I'd say two more years because I didn't switch to religious studies until, um, the second semester of my junior year. I think the next class I took with him was moral theology. Um, right. and that really helped me fall in love, um, with religious studies and theology, the way that he handled that class, the way that he taught. Um, I don't know. He just is one of my biggest role models and inspirations still to this day, but my material career kind of came full circle with him after being in his classes and then him being the advisor of my final thesis versus me being in his very, like my very first class, my very first professor. Um, if I keep talking about him, I'll start tearing up because every time I send him an email and he emails me back, I start crying because I miss him. <laughs> I haven't seen him since, I think for, since graduation. I don't know. I'm scared. I sent him a Christmas card, but I never heard anything back. <laughs> um, the last, I will email him every couple months and he keeps saying like, oh, maybe I'll come to Milwaukee and take you out to dinner. Or if you're in lacrosse, let me know and I'll take you out to eat. Um, and I just, it keeps slipping my mind that he actually means that. Like he for sure would come in a heartbeat. Um, yeah, I need to email him. I'll go do that after this. I had a similar experience because I started college as a music theater major. And I've talked about that a little bit on the podcast, but I think it, it needs an episode of its own. Um, I had a very depressing and anxiety filled freshman and sophomore year I was just lost completely. And really the one class that I liked and enjoyed going to was his religious studies 160, which everybody at Viterbo has to take because it's a Catholic institution and you have to learn a little bit about God and Jesus, God forbid. Um, And after two years of being in the arts and really just not feeling happy and not feeling fulfilled, I was reflecting on my two years and I'm like, there was something about that religious studies class with Dr. Mike. And then I switched and it was, I think that that we took the moral theology class the same semester. And it was amazing because no tea, no shade to Dr. Mike, but it was very meaningful to have um, a boomer, white Catholic man who was previously a Catholic brother talk about real life issues in such a graceful and like open-minded way are you laughing because I called him a boomer I'm sorry I'm literally over here dying (laughs) he's a boomer yeah he really is this man would dish out so much shit all the time and he's so serious he was so we talk about him like he's dead. He's definitely not dead. Trust not me. Dead. Not and dead. you know what? Maybe he's listening to the podcast. Maybe, maybe I could get him as a guest. <gasps> do it. Oh my God. Oh my God. Do it. He likes you better. So you should reach out to him and say like, hey, Zoe, remember her? She has a podcast and you should be on it. Yeah, I can put in a plug for you. Um, but yeah, Zoe, I mean... I think Zoe and I kind of transitioned into the program, their little studies program at the same time. Yeah. Um, Callie's already in it. I was already like, I knew Callie was friends with Callie because I had been involved in campus ministry prior to becoming a part of the major. Um, but Zoe, <laughs> Zoe just like comes into campus ministry one day 
I I don't even I don't even like remember the whole context of it, but I just remember you were like, yeah, I'm a major now and I'm here. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And like, I wasn't friends with Zoe before this. I know, like, I knew who Zoe was because she was a very prominent figure in the music theater department. And she was always just this, like, I remember her being blonde, just like this tall blonde girl strutting around campus, just doing her own thing. Like, like, oh, this girl's going to be in my classes now. And I don't know, that first class, we we had like a later class and the three of us would go on campus ministry and just like warm up food and sit there and talk. Yeah, I got, yeah. We just hang out. I was like, okay, this girl's pretty cool. Um, Yeah, Zoe was probably like my most unexpected friend of Viterbo, but I, I that yeah. being in the religious studies department and being friends with all of you really brought me back to my roots. It brought me back to feeling comfortable in my own skin because like you said, I was blonde. Um, my first two years of theater school, really, I I struggled a lot with appearance, with identity. I changed my hair color. I changed my hair length. I wore a lot of makeup. I wore no makeup. I played a lot with fashion. And while I don't, you know, I don't condemn any of that because some people like that's their passion. It's not mine. And I was doing it because I wasn't comfortable with who I was inside. And I mean, I, when I was 18, 19, 20, I would not ever imagine like hanging out with friends and not wearing a full face makeup or like not waking up at 6am to curl my hair. But I just, I found this place and this comfort with all of you that just allowed me to be exactly who I was. And I think that that was really the start of an amazing friendship. Yeah. I, I switching from a bachelor of science, going from elementary ed to psychology and then full on sending it into a master or not a master of arts. That's what I'm doing right now. A bachelor of arts in religious studies and theology was probably like the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. At that point, I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I have no idea who I want to be. Um, and once I like had those classes, I had those friends from that community. Like I already had like a foundation of campus ministry, but like those classes really like brought me life and they brought me purpose and they brought me meaning. Um, and that, that leap that I took is like truly like the definition of like what a leap of faith is. And like you like knowing that God has like the right path set out for you and me just being like, all right, I'm just going to do it. And I always consider myself to be such a, like a spontaneous person. I make such, I don't want to say rash decisions, but I'm like, this seems right. I'm going to do it. And then I do it. And I usually have no regrets. And I'm like, all right, cool. Like, it's not easy. Those things definitely are not easy. But I mean, that's how I ended up in Detroit. Mm -hmm. I almost ended up in Boston. Like, I don't know, man, it's been a wild ride. It has. And I think for me and probably for a, a bunch of us, because we obviously did have friends outside of our little trio. Um, it was kind of a safe haven because at the end of my sophomore year, when I was in a really dark place because of everything that was going on in the theater department, I mean, I was like, I don't mean to sound pity party, but I was basically bullied out of the department and I had gone through a really bad breakup and my self-esteem and my mental health was at the absolute lowest. I joined this department, the religious studies department, and I just felt so safe in campus ministry because 
I was terrified to see all of these people from the last two years of school. I was terrified to see my professors. I thought that they would see me as weak or as a failure for switching out of the department. And I didn't have to worry about it because we just had our little hello classroom with the Keurig and all the puzzles. <laughs> Enough about undergrad. Let's talk about your year of service. Okay. So my year of service, um, full transparency, I had really no idea what I wanted to do after graduation. Like job wise, I was like, I could go in so many directions. I don't fully know right now. Like, I don't want to put myself in a situation where like I'm going to regret it or be unhappy. Um, and I also just didn't want to do nothing. Like, I don't want to be that person because I'm like, I always need to be moving. I always need to be going. Um, so my friend, Amanda, who's a year older than me, Amanda Latulip, shout out to you if you're listening. Um, she did a year of service in Pittsburgh. Yep, she did a year of service in Pittsburgh. She was a um, volunteer nurse um, through Mercy Volunteer Corps. Um, and then my friend Emily Patchen, who's the same age as me, graduated the year before me when I was supposed to graduate. Um, she did a year of service through Mercy Volunteer Corps in Baltimore. Yep, in Baltimore. Um, and I learned a lot about the program through both of them, their experiences. Um, for those of you who don't know what a year of service is, it's so through Mercy Volunteer Corps, it's like a smaller um, there's so many different volunteer corps across the country, um, like Jesuit Volunteer Corps, Mercy Volunteer Corps, our friend Miranda did Franciscan Corps, right? Francis Corps. I think so. Um, anyways, but Mercy Volunteer Corps um, was the program that both my friends had done. So I was familiar with it. I applied. The application was super simple. Um, it's kind of just like filling out basic information about who you are. Um, you have to answer some short answer questions like about your values, who you are, what you want to do, see if you're a good fit for the program, if the program's a good fit for you. Um, send in your application and then they'll contact you. Um, you can do so many things like during your service. Like both my friends were nurses, but um, I was not a nurse, obviously. <laughs> um, so I wanted to do kind of like a campus ministry position. And there was a couple high schools across the country through Mercy Volunteer Corps that offered a campus ministry position. Um, so there was Mercy Volunteer Corps has during my year had, I want to say, 10 to 12 different cities, eight to 10 to 12 different cities um, that you can volunteer at. Um, there was Detroit Crystal Ray High School, which is the school that had the campus ministry position, there was a position in California, I think it was San Francisco, and then Detroit. When I interviewed for a position, so after your application, they'll set up an interview like with somebody to move forward. Um, and I was like, this is the position that I'm interested in. This is kind of like what I want to do. So they're like, cool. Well, we only have the Detroit site open for campus minister i was like sure like set me they set up the interview for you or they contact so they contacted the principal of the school for me to reach out to me him and i set up an interview and it wasn't even like a formal interview with him and i the principal at Krista ray it was just like getting to know you are you a good fit for me am i a good fit for you type of thing just casual conversation 
Um, and the people of NBC, the staff at Krista Ray that I had talked to, very understanding, very welcoming. Um, they're just great people. I felt I felt very comfortable with them. I knew that it was it was a smaller community too. That's another thing. NBC was a smaller community. I had also applied to Jesuit Volunteer Corps. And that program is huge. Um, um, but I really enjoyed how small the community felt, especially after being at a small community, like a place like Viterbo. Um, so yeah, after the interview, I, you have like a certain amount of time to say, Hey, I think the interview went great. Let's move forward. Or no, I want to interview with some other place or, Hey, maybe this isn't for me. I got off the interview and immediately emailed um, Marie at NBC saying, Hey, interview went great. I would love to be there if they will have me. Um, and like the next day, I think she emailed me. It was like, great. Principals emailed me too. He said he would love to have you at the school, whatever. Um, so yeah, it was a very cool feeling. Um, with Mercy. So do you, so you apply to Mercy as a whole and then you interview with these specific locations? Correct. Yep. Yep. So you apply to the program and then once the program accepts you, um, then you move forward in determining like, what you want to do, whether it's like um, public service, um, nursing, healthcare, like there's different positions in healthcare too. Like it's not just for nurses. Um, like some of my roommates when I was in Detroit worked at different clinics doing like um, other work at the clinic. Can you talk about your experience once you were in Detroit? Yes. So our program before your year of service starts, everybody is in one city together. So everybody starts for five days in Philadelphia, which is where MVC is um, like kind of like their headquarters or where like they're, they run out of. Um, so we were at a retreat center, all of the cities, all of the kids. I think there was like 28 of us total um, at this retreat center for five days. It was great. Everybody like became best friends. We became like a little family. Um, you got to meet all the other volunteers. And then after the five days, you go to your respective site with your roommates or community members. Sorry. So it was me and two other humans um, in Detroit. And it was very difficult for me, honestly. Um, my two community members were both in healthcare. Um, I was in education at a school. Um, they were of a different faith than me, which was totally fine. Like I loved learning about their faith. It was very cool to be exposed to, um, a different way of practice. Um, but they had known each other prior to our year of service, um, and didn't fully understand the purpose of Mercy Volunteer Corps. They kind of just wanted a year, like a gap year before med school or whatever it is they wanted to do. Somebody who would pay for their housing, um, so they could just have another year of experience. Um, so they didn't fully put into the program what they should have um, or what I was anticipating or expecting. Um, and they kind of just did their own thing, which left me very isolated in this new city where I knew absolutely no one. Um, mm -hmm. Luckily, I became very close with coworkers and my students at my placement. Um, at Crystal Ray, I was, this was located in Southwest Detroit, which is considered to be Mexican town. Um, and my school was primarily um, Hispanic. I do so, just want to say 
for listeners, she put Mexican town in quotes. We can't see that because it's a podcast, <laughs> but Correct. yes. Yes. Okay. So uh, your student population. Yes. So it's about 90% Hispanic, about close to 10% black and then like 1% white. Um, but the majority of the staff, as most schools are, were predominantly white. Um, but a lot of these, a lot of my staff members knew Spanish. Um, I had some Spanish, not enough to like keep up in conversation or understand my students, um, but they also do speak English. Um, so that it wasn't a barrier. Um, but I was very weary going into this space, knowing that I was a white female college educated. Um, I didn't want to come across as like somebody who knew everything. Um, mm -hmm. So I was very nervous about that at first. Um, and I remember talking to Emilio, our campus minister at Turbo, saying, like, do you think this would be a good fit for me? Like, do you, like, what is your advice? And he told me, just go into it and don't force anything. Just listen before you speak. Mm -hmm. um, and I took that to heart. I really just kind of let my, like, let myself become immersed in their culture, in the way that they do things and who they were. Um, letting myself get, letting myself like get used to where I was um, and be comfortable with who they were because I was coming into their space, their home, their territory. Um, and it was hard. The first month of school was very hard um, because these students were very protective of themselves, of each other, um, of their teachers, of their staff. And rightfully so. Like I was just like this random white girl who just showed up at their school, like who are you? What are you doing? Um, but one of my coworkers, so I worked in the campus ministry office. There's three of us. Um, one of the other campus ministers was Maria. Love her. Um, she was also young. She's a couple years older than me. Um, she also did a year of service, not the MBC, but um, she like spoke fluent Spanish. She was also religious studies. So she kind of like was my, I don't know, Oh, almost like my knight in shining armor. She like took me under her wing for the whole year, basically. Um, but she taught the 11th grade theology class and 11th grade theology was centered around like social justice, morality. And she knew like that was what I was passionate about. So she goes, the NBCs don't usually do this, but do you want to co-teach with me? Hmm. Um, so I got to co-teach with her the whole year, like helped her create lesson plans, um, different projects for the students. And I think like, because the students absolutely were like they loved her they adored her um and I think once they realized like oh this girl is cool with Maria like we can be cool with her too um so they began she would introduce me to some of her favorite students and like oh you should get to know this person or this person and that really helped um create kind of like open the door for me to create a community um and relationships of my own um and these students began to embrace me they began to like me at first they were very they can be very rude at times when they they want to test you they want to break you until they realize like okay this person's chill um, and that's very much what they did um so it's like why 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 don't these kids like want to know me what is like what's the deal here um but I realized that's also just that's part of their culture and that was me not understanding their culture and having to take a step back and be like okay it's not you um, so a lot of like my growth and learning throughout that year was learning to let go of like 
I don't want to say selfishness, but like not the why me or what what am I doing rather than where am I? What should I be aware of? Um, these kids, the staff, everybody like very much welcomed me into their culture. Um, they didn't make fun of me. I mean, every once in a while they'd make fun of me for being white or for something being too spicy for me, which was really funny. Um, like anybody knows me, I have a lot of like GI issues, heartburn issues. Like I cannot do spicy whatsoever. Like truly the worst, like I can't do it. And these kids just thought it was hilarious. So obviously year of service was just one year. And when did you decide that you were going to pursue uh, grad school? Um, I always knew that I wanted to go to grad school throughout the year of service. I, in teaching these kids, there was so much that I discovered that like, I wanted to know more about, like these kids had so many questions about what Marie and I were teaching them. And I'd be like, great question. I want to go learn more. Like I need to learn more. Like it's like my duty to like go and be taught more and give more to them. So I could have had a position. I could have stayed at Crystal Ray um, teaching and doing campus ministry. And it actually broke my heart to leave them. I grew to love Detroit. I loved the city. I loved like the own little, like this little life that I created for myself there. Um, My students became like my little brothers and sisters. Like I absolutely adored them. I went back for their, I promised them when I left that I'd come back for their graduation. So in June, um, I drove to Detroit and surprised majority of them for their graduation. And it was such a beautiful time. I was so proud of them. And now they're all starting college and I'm so proud. I still talk to some of them um, and it's so cool to see what they're doing in life. So many of them are so smart and sorry to keep talking about this, but I think it's very important for people to know that years of service so many people will be like and I got told this a lot and I didn't really know how to respond but people would be like oh you're doing such great work for those kids or I'm sure those kids appreciate you so much and you're doing such good things for them and there's a big part of that that isn't what I'm doing for them um it's what they're doing for me as well i I don't go in there with the mindset like it's very much tied to the white savior complex, Mm -hmm. which also very much bothers me. And we're not going to get into that, but I did not do a year of service to get praised for what I was doing for those kids or for that school. I went into this year of service wanting to learn about a culture that was different than mine. Um, I wanted to become exposed to what else the world had to offer me. And I wanted to learn just as much from them as they could ever possibly learn from me. And I'd say like the biggest, the most important like word taken away from that year was a a company or a company accompaniment. I don't know how to say that word. It's very hard. Yeah. Something like that. Um, But not and this ties into like the teachings of Jesus. Like you, we, I, whoever, we are meant to walk with one another. Um, and I always told my my kids this too, like you're not, it's not somebody like walking in front of you 
like bearing your load for you or it's not somebody walking behind you making sure that you're doing the right thing it's like walking hand in hand together um like they were just as much a part of my journey as I was a part of theirs and yeah I guess that's like one of the biggest things um Maria did a great job of that um my coworker she loved Gregory Boyle Father Gregory Boyle um the circle of mercy and that everybody is welcomed to the circle that we all are meant to like become one within the circle we are all meant to be one with each other nobody is meant to be an outcast everybody is supposed to be um, at the table and I think that that still continues to be one of my biggest focus in my studies um that we are all meant to sit at the same table that's amazing yeah so you decided to go to Marquette, which is Dr. Mike's alma mater. So that was a full circle moment for our podcast as well. <laughs> yes. Um, so through Mercy Volunteer Corps, um, honestly, through most years, through most volunteer services, um, you can get a scholarship or discounts or whatever tuition reduction I don't know depends on the school depends on the program but through MVC I was able to get um, various scholarships or in relation to Marquette I have half of my tuition covered um, because I completed a year of service wow I yeah so that is a huge benefit Um, I also applied to Boston College um, in Boston I toured there I loved it I was in like this whole daze when I was out there visiting. And then I came back to reality and realized how, how expensive the East Coast was. Mm-hmm. And I, it would have been great. It would have been amazing. I would have had full tuition there. I would have had a TA or TA position or a graduate assistantship. Um, but I don't think my heart was fully in it. I knew that I needed to be closer to home. And mm-hmm. um, I'm very grateful that I'm closer to family and friends. Um, but Yes, Marquette, Dr. Mike got his doctorate here. And when I was writing my uh, personal statement for my application for Marquette, I talked about him, about how like my biggest like role model or my biggest mentor like earned his degree from here. And if I was able to get the education that I got from him, that he got from here, mm-hmm. then it was like almost meant to be that I ended up here. And yeah. I remember like tearing up when I wrote that. It's like, um, but you only cry when it has to do with Dr. Mike. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sorry, Emily Dykeman and Sister Laura. Anyways, um, but yeah, Marquette, the campus, the people, the city, it's great. I love it here. Um, last fall, um, my grandpa passed away, like right as the semester was starting. And I had so many of my classmates reach out to me, um, expressing their sympathies, wanting to make sure I was okay, hang out if I needed to, like wanted somebody just to be with. My professors at the time were super, super um, understanding. I was very nervous about like how it would impact my schooling, but my professors were great, very understanding. The community is very cool. The whole like theology grad department, the master's students and the doctoral students kind of like all meshed together and are one. Um, So that also was very cool for me to realize. And everybody is like very close. It's like, everybody's very inclusive in like one big theological community. Um, and there's so many different like denominations and 
different faiths being practiced amongst students. It's, it's fascinating. Do you um do you live on campus? I do. So when I decided I wanted to come here, it was kind of like I don't want to say like a late decision, but I didn't want to try to worry about finding an apartment or somewhere to live like off campus since I didn't really know the area that well. And I was weary about like choosing a sketchy apartment in like a sketchy area. Um, so uh, there's an apartment building called The Mark on campus. Um, it's sponsored by Marquette, but it's basically run like any other normal apartment. There's really no like strict rules or regulations like most university apartments do. And it's all for like upper upperclassmen and graduate students. Um, and I lived there last year and this year, and it's been nice. I walk to class whenever I have class, so it's good exercise, except it's downhill to campus, but uphill back home. <laughs> mm-hmm. So on the days on the days that I have class, I decide that I don't need to go to the gym because that's my workout. Amen. I agree. I agree. So do you have roommates or is it more of like a dorm style? So last year, I they put me in a four-bedroom apartment with no roommates. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, man. I wasn't complaining. I had a pool table in my apartment. That yeah, was whack. Um, but this year, I am in a different apartment. I'm in a two-bedroom, and I do have roommates. And it's going well? Yeah. Good. So we're going to talk some more lighthearted questions. <laughs> Because I've grilled you a lot about your beliefs, your life trajectory or trajectory. So one of the things that we bonded on pretty early on was that we're both Potter heads. So which uh, which Hogwarts house are you, Lauren? Uh, <laughs> growing up, growing up, I convinced myself that I was a Gryffindor. Tried and true. I was like, there's no way I'm not a Gryffindor. Um, Once I got older, I took the test and I was put into the Hufflepuff house. But every single time that I take a test from like a couple years ago up until now, every other result is like half Hufflepuff, half Slytherin. (laughs) So I am like half Hufflepuff, half Slytherin, if that exists. You know, I think because I'm like a tried and true Hufflepuff. And I don't see like a lot of similarities. I think you and I are like maybe different ends of like the same spectrum. You know, we're like yin and yang. We complement each other. But like I would say you give me more Slytherin vibes. Although I could also see you as a Ravenclaw. Yeah, I like my whole life have also been like surprised that I've never like every, every test I've ever taken, like nothing, no Ravenclaw or Gryffindor have ever like occurred in any of my tests so don't know my sisters are slytherin she's proud of that one's in the family i mean look at the malfoys i'm Um, not malfoy trust me um (laughs) have you taken the enneagram personality test zoe this is a terrible thing to bring up because i will go on for days about the enneagram um yes i I am a two obviously know that you've taken it i just wanted you to talk about it okay i'm a two wing three i think my two-ness thinks that everybody else that I come across is a two. Um, and then I when I first realized that like not all my friends or like people in my life are twos, I became like severely disappointed. But I am. I, I am two. Yeah. Zoe is a two. Zoe is a two. Um, I have this book 
The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective by Richard Rohr. Oh. Yeah. I stole it from my MVC house. Don't tell anybody. Well, this will go on the internet. Um, True. But it talk, he talks about what the Enneagram is, how it relates to Christianity, um, the different types. So a type two, the biggest need is the need to be needed. Um, which very much correlates with who I am as a human being. I am the type of person who puts everybody first. I will do anything and everything in my power to make sure that everybody else around me in my life, whether they're friends, not my friends, family, whoever, um, to make sure that they are happy and have what they need. And I have always done that. And it has bitten me, bitten me in the ass so many times, um, but yet I still continue to do it. But I've gotten much better at learning that I cannot give to others unless I have given to myself first. Yes. Um. Still process, still going through it. Honestly, as a fellow too, I can say that that must be something that we all struggle with because saying no to something is like the hardest thing in the entire world. But then what happens with me is I say yes to everything. And then I exhaust myself because I'm overcommitted. And then I'm giving like 50% to everything instead of a hundred percent to the things I really care about. And it's just a vicious cycle. I will ask you, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but how, how would you say that that mentality has affected like your romantic relationships? That's a good question. I will answer it. I think in certain aspects, it has negatively um, impacted my relationships. I think more so like impacted me less than my partner. Um, But because like I'm in a romantic relationship, I mean, not right now, but Hypothetically, I'm in a romantic relationship and I have this human being that I love, that I care for, that I want the best for, and I want to prove that to them. Like, I want to show that to them. So I do everything in my power. Like, honestly, sometimes I feel like it turned into love bombing. Mm -hmm. And that's the last thing I wanted to do because that is so toxic. But I wanted to give them everything, whether it was physically, mentally, emotionally to show like, Hey, I love you. I care about you. Like you're the most important person in my life, but in doing so, I gave so much of myself. I gave in, I did things I didn't necessarily want to do. Um, I gave up so much time. Um, and it just exhausted the absolute hell out of me. Like I, in these relationships, sometimes I found myself not even recognizing who I am because I would give up so much to make this person happy that I wasn't even like giving anything to myself that I was constantly doing all these things because we want to be need we want to be needed we want to be loved mm-hmm. and so by giving everything and doing everything that my partner wants that's how I think that I will be needed and wanted and if I don't give that to them then they're not going to need me or they're not going to want me um And something that I've learned is that if you're with someone that's, that's healthy, and this is something that Ben has taught me a lot, 
is that the the greatest thing that he wants for me is for me to take care of myself because in turn that makes me a better partner a better daughter a better sister a better cat mom you know all of these things and it, it really is twisted because as you know we're both like super empaths we're both like we feel other people's feelings as our own it's so hard to turn inward and not feel like we're being like selfish enables yeah um one thing that i will always remember from a past relationship um it was my longest relationship um towards the end it got a little rocky and i remember my partner one day saying to me you're not yourself and i was like what do you what do you mean i'm not myself and they said well i don't I don't see you doing the things that you usually love to do. You're not doing this. Like you aren't doing all the things that you would always tell me made you happy or that like, I could see that made you happy. Like you're not doing those things anymore. And I never recognized how important that was. And even to this day, I still think about that. Like when I find myself like so down or like in a space that I feel like I can't dig myself out of, I'm like, why am I not doing the things that make me happy? And it, and it's always important, especially in the life of ministry, because our job is literally giving to other people. And I'm not saying that in like a self-serving way or a way like pity us, we're in ministry. No, we do it because we love it. But it is giving and serving and pouring of ourselves and our souls and our own prayer lives and all of this. And if we're also doing that in our own relationships, it's just exhausting. Going back to my life in Detroit, my coworker Maria, she also loved the Enneagram. I talk in the past tense as if like these people don't exist anymore, but they absolutely do. Maria is currently living her best life in Puerto Rico, I think. Costa Rica. I don't know. One of the two. But she was a sixth. Um and I thought she was a two, of course, um, but she was a six. And twos, we want to console people. We want to be there for people. We want people to console us. We want people to be with us. Um, but as a six, when she was going through something or she like had a hard time or something or whatever, my immediate reaction as a two is to go like run like, what do you need? What can I do for you? This and that. Like, I'm here. But as a six, she didn't need me to be there. She needed her own space. She needed her own time. She needed her, she needed to think on her own. She needed to do what she needed to do on her own to better herself. And that was a very rude awakening for me that not everybody that I meet, not everybody that I'm close with is going to need me. But that doesn't mean that I'm not needed. That doesn't mean that I'm not loved. And that took so and like she was she wasn't mean or rude or anything about it. She was like very gracious at like teaching me this. Like, Lauren, I know like there are drastic differences between you and me. And I know this is how you are. But how I am is not a reflection on you. Mm. Um and you're yeah, like, no, everybody is it too. Yeah. So please. <laughs> No, that's um, that's really that is really great insight. 
Yeah. And in turn, I it made me realize like as a two, I can be so selfish. So selfish. And it just it asks that the thought of being selfish drives me nuts because I want to be the most selfless person. Yeah. But in turn, I am being selfish trying to be selfless. What do you say to people when they don't then they say they don't believe in the Enneagram or personality test? Last semester in my virtue ethics class, we were talking about or we had to like create like this lesson plan. I put that in quotes because it wasn't like a full lesson plan. Like our professor just wanted us to like come up with this activity or something that we would teach an undergrad class for like 15 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. And I, my activity was that I would connect virtue to the Enneagram, me being the nerd that I am. And I had this, like, I would have each of the students, like, take the Enneagram test or, like, learn about the types and then take the test and then get into, like, different groups and discuss, like, their similarities, differences, whatever, and how, like, that relates to, like, their themselves as like virtue like what virtues they see in themselves how that connects to their enneagram how that plays into whatever um and I had one of the older boys in my class be like I'm sorry but I just I don't do personality types I don't understand them I don't think they're accurate like just like went on this like whole skeptical thing and he goes why do you think this is relevant like why do you think this is like and I just sat there and I was like, oh, my God, what do I even say to this? I was like, I feel like a dumbass right now. Like, but my professor really liked it. Anyways, um, I was like, whether it's the Enneagram or another, like the Myers-Briggs, any personality test, it's not an end-all be-all. It's not black and white. It doesn't, you don't have to let it define you whatsoever. But it can be useful in helping to explain who you are, who you might be. Like, it's so hard to under- understand yourself just by, like, being, just by existing. But when you have a system like the Enneagram that can give you guidance as to, like, hey, I recognize myself in this. This is what happens when I'm not healthy. This is what happens when I'm healthy. Like, these are the steps I can take to get there. This is what I can do to improve this. And like knowing your friends or your partners or your family's numbers and being able to be like, okay, this is how I can interact with this six to better my relationship with them. Mm -hmm. Or this is how I can interact with myself to make myself healthier. Um, Like, it's a way to get to know yourself like on a deeper level get to know others on a deeper level and strengthen those bonds and relationships and create a more like understanding in your community, just in life in general, like having a better understanding of people on a deeper level is so important. And I feel like the Enneagram can absolutely help you with that. I, um, I'm seriously thinking about doing an Enneagram lesson or series with my, my youth at church because I remember doing it when I was, when I was a youth, because my youth pastor, Paul, shout out Paul, really liked the Enneagram. And I thought it was amazing. And I've always been into stuff. So maybe that's what I'll do this year. We'll see. Um, just because I'm simply curious, do you know your Myers-Briggs? 
I can't remember for the life of me what it is. Well, since uh, we're so, uh, so aligned, I wonder if it's an INFP. <laughs> I honestly think that's pretty spot on. I go back and forth between I and E. I don't know what it is. My whole life, I always thought that I was an introvert. Um, until I moved to Detroit and I realized like I needed people. Like there are certain instances where like I absolutely need like my time and my space to recharge but there are more often than not times where like I need I think it's specifically like my people that I know will give me that energy that I know will give me that love that I need to like recharge um but I like told some of my friends this is like the same realization of when I found out I wasn't a Gryffindor (laughs) where I was like I turned to my friends and I was like guys I think I'm actually an extrovert and they're like Lauren we we could have told you that I'm like oh that's like when I came out sophomore year of college I was like yeah I think I'm gay and my my friends were like Lauren honey like we we knew that and I was like can you just let me have my moment I just I just want to come out to you and have a real coming out story um so what have you been listening to on Spotify or Apple Music but your Spotify Spotify um sorry I really cannot stand Apple Music users um, okay, apologies. But, okay. But they listen to this to the podcast, so I love them. <laughs> I guess. Um, okay, here, okay. Here's my issue with Apple Music. I mean, I haven't ever used it, so I can't really say. But it's like the whole Spotify sharing playlists, like collabing on playlists, and then Spotify Wrapped. Like that's all just superior. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Yes. It's so good. Like, how do you not enjoy that cute little present at the end of the year? I know. So, yes, I prefer Spotify. So, yes, what is on your uh, on repeat or your what have you been listening to lately? Okay. Um, podcast wise, shameless plug to Zoe. Hello, good humans. Listening to that. <laughs> um, Glenn and Doyle. We can do hard things. I pick and choose those from what I deem relevant to my life. Um, I just saw the Lumineers this past Saturday, so I've been listening to them on repeat. Um, Taylor Swift has been huge this summer for me. Sorry, guys, I'm absolutely a Swifty. Um, have you always been a Swifty? I have. Okay, I have. Yes. What is your um? What is your preferred era? Hmm. I debut will always have a special place in my heart debut is the first album taylor swift oh okay the, the country album as people so call it on my guitar or no yep yeah no. yep um i also am a huge lover of folklore and evermore um but i feel like as if right now i am in my reputation era okay. feel very edgy um let's see uh Josiah and the Bonnevilles very lit um Noah Khan also Noah Khan is my absolute favorite artist in the entire world so what is like their most favorite famous song Noah Khan yeah um well recently Stick Season okay Stick Season um Dial Drunk with Post Malone oh um Cynic Troubled Mind Youngblood Josiah and the Bonnevilles, they do, they're more like country. They do covers of a lot of songs, which are very good. Um, 
Joy Alatakun. Love her. A queer black artist. Okay. Mm-hmm. I could go on and on about music. I absolutely adore music. I mean, yeah. a lot of people do, but um, yeah. Haim, the band Haim. These are all new to me, which is exciting because I've been listening to the artists that people talk about. And so it will expand my musical expertise somewhat. I can make you a playlist. Please do. I'll send it to you. Mm-hmm. And I'll post language. it. I'll post it in the show notes. Cool. Yeah, that's my love language is making playlists for people. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Also, Tyler Childers is very good. In Your Love, his new song, In Your Love. Um, he's a country artist. This was very controversial. Tyler Childers is a country artist. And his new song, In Your Love, his music video featured two gay men, coal miners, um, who were in a relationship with each other. And there was a lot of lashback saying country music and the gay community don't go together in this and that, blah, blah, blah. But they do. Gay people are for everyone, for everything. Gay don't hate are. us. I like, country, I like country music and I'm gay. So I'm a Catholic and I'm gay. So here I am. And you're an amazing person and you're gay. So um, thank you. Speaking of country music and gay people, there is uh, a new artist. Uh, <laughs> are you about to talk about what I think you're about to talk about? Bouncing not my booty. <laughs> Um, I hope you include my laugh in the podcast. I will. I was hoping that it would come out at some point. So uh, one of my favorite memories of you, and I know you know what it is, is um, we were in Emily Dykeman's class. And let me just set the scene for our listeners. Um, Everybody at Viterbo has to take religious studies classes. Only three people at Viterbo want to take religious studies classes. Me, Lauren, and Callie. And so so we're in our religious studies classes, which is obviously like our jam. And everyone else is forced to be there. And so the three of us just sit like front and center. And we're just besties with our professors. And it's amazing. We're the only ones that ask questions, answer questions, all this. Well, Something happened during this class, and this was the first time that I had really experienced what we know as the honk, um, because Lauren started laughing, and she couldn't stop laughing, and the entire class just went silent listening to Lauren's laugh, because what else was there to do when there's literally a goose in your room just honking away, so. And Emily Dykeman just let it happen. Like she fully accepted it and just sat back and let it happen. <laughs> I think I had to walk out of the class at some point. There was many classes that I had to walk out of because I I couldn't. So this class was spring semester of 2020. And I think, I think one of the best parts was that once we went on Zoom, we had those guys in our class that would literally just be like laying in bed vaping during our Zoom class. And by best was, parts, I mean worst parts. Yeah, that was really cute. Um, sorry to all my professors, but there was definitely times over Zoom, over university, that I turned my camera off and I just took a nap. Probably same. I don't. I don't remember specifically, but probably. Oh, there was also the very dramatic event when you had a pride flag in the back of your Zoom call. Yeah. Oh yeah. So this was this our senior year. Yep. It was yeah. This is our senior year, my second senior year, 
Um, and we were on Zoom and one of the incoming religious studies freshmen, very, very like radically conservative. I had a pride flag in the back of my Zoom, like on my wall. Um, I do now too, if you're wondering. Um, anyways, this boy goes to Sister Laura, like goes to her office and is like, um, did one of those kids have a pride or a rainbow flag hanging up in the back of their Zoom call? Yeah. So I was like, uh, yeah, yep, they did. Because that's what we What about it? Have a turbo, we teach love. Oh, okay. Well, hold on. Oh. Okay, sorry. There's one I there's this article that I read last semester um by Xavier Montesel, he's a theologian. Um, but it kind of like wraps up this article, kind of explained in words that like I have failed to find about what it is to be um, a queer Catholic. So I'm just going to read a paragraph of this article, if that's okay. Yes. Okay. Um, so this this is what it feels like, in my opinion, to be a queer Catholic. Um, this is, again, from Xavier Monticel. These are not my words. Um, but he says, I am what many Catholics and others would consider a walking contradiction, a gay theologian, and not only that, but a moral theologian as well. What I am is a product of radical hospitality. I have welcomed into myself, into my own identity, a church that often fails to welcome me in return. I've chosen to serve that church and to accept the risks that come along with that. In turn, other Catholics have welcomed me. Though not all ecclesial spaces are friendly, many of them are. The rich personal hospitality of my Catholic siblings gives me hope for a broader ecclesial hospitality in the making. That does sum it up for you, doesn't it? Yep. There we are. And even though you said you can't find the words yourself, doesn't it give you hope that other people feel the same way and can identify with you and you with them? Yeah, yeah. for sure. It's been a long journey. Well, I mean, we only have like minutes left on this Zoom call, but I re- I remember specifically asking you at one point, why are you still Catholic? Like if I was in your position, I... I would leave. I mean, I I can't imagine purposefully staying in a space that is so discriminatory at times and historically, of course, like progress is being made and things are very, very slowly getting more loving and accepting. But I was just like, I don't get it. I I give you major props because you are strong in your own identity and stick to your core beliefs. Yeah. I remember sister Laura before I graduated saying like, cause sister Laura is a Franciscan Catholic nun. Um, I don't know if we established that earlier, but she turned to me and she goes, you know, I would not blame you one bit if you ever chose to leave the Catholic church. Like I think you would be able to make great progress and change a lot of things for us, but I would not. <laughs> I mean, it's not sad it's just more heavy you know no and and that's the thing you you could have left at any point but you're 25 26 25 25 I'm a quarter of a century year old so for a quarter of a century you have worshiped God in the way that you know how and that you feel strong in and you have also stayed st- strong and true to yourself and I think that that's a beautiful thing because you're not running away from this thing that may scare you or make you feel like crap at times. And you know that whatever God, 
whatever God we are worshiping, me as a Methodist, you as a Catholic, it's the same God. And he, she, they are going to love us for who we are because we were created by them. Yeah, that's what I always tell people. Like, that's one of my, I don't want to say cop-out answers, but like when people ask me or like say something about it, I'm just like, well, God created me. He created you. He created all of creation, like in his image or in, sorry, in their image. I don't like using he, him pronouns for God, but it's so patriarchal. God has pronouns too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, God loves everybody as they are. And if he, if, if God did not appreciate or love the queers, he wouldn't have made them. Period. That's That's, that's all I got to say. Well, I have much more to say, but we didn't have time for that. So that's okay. We will bring you back for part two. For for all I'm concerned about, we'll do this again. Um, but okay, thank you so much for coming today, and I appreciate you. And you are a damn good human, Lauren. So are you, Zoe? So are you? Thank you, Zozy. Zozy. <laughs> all right. Well, say goodbye to all of our listeners. Bye, listeners. I love you. I don't know who you are, but I love you. I love you, Zoe. <laughs> love you too. And I'm sure I'll text you right after this. So, dope. Okay. I'll be here. Bye. Bye.